and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I'm an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Today, we're putting the emphasis on pharmacists in Breakpoints podcast title and introducing a new class of episodes that we're calling dosing consults. And what better antibiotic to start with with this than ceftriaxone? It's simple yet complex and invokes many questions from those that know it, just like every classic rom-com novel. I have two expert panelists joining me today to help delve into the depths of ceftriaxone dosing. The first is Tom Dilworth and the second is Stephanie Sheely May. Dr. Dilworth earned his PharmD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and completed postgraduate training at the University of New Mexico, including a second year infectious diseases residency and an infectious diseases research fellowship. He's the system director of clinical pharmacy services for Advocate Aurora Health and serves as the program director for the PGY2 Infectious Diseases Pharmacy Residency Program at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center. In this role, he has oversight of the Drug Policy Center, Infectious Diseases Pharmacy Team, the PNT Committee, and pharmacy practice. Prior to this role, he was an infectious diseases pharmacist based at St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's also an active member of SIDP and their Policy and Government Affairs Committee, and he serves as this committee's past chair. Outside of work, he enjoys spending time with his wife and three kids, playing sports, hiking, DIY home projects, and vacationing in Door County. His personal hobbies include running, weightlifting, bicycling, as well as reading, listening to music, and collecting records. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. Next, we have Dr. Stephanie Sheely May. Dr. May earned her PharmD from the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina, where she stayed to complete PGY-1 and PGY-2 infectious diseases residencies at Prisma Health Richland and the University of South Carolina. Following postgraduate training, she joined Intermountain Healthcare based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, where she's an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship telehealth pharmacist. She serves 18 small community and critical access hospitals across Utah and Idaho. Her role also involves engaging in outreach stewardship through the Intermountain Telehealth Regional Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infectious Diseases Network, which provides antimicrobial stewardship expertise and mentorship to non-affiliated facilities. She's also an active member of SIDP and serves as the current vice chair of the membership committee. In her free time, she enjoys the outdoors of Utah with her husband and her dog. She's recently taken skiing as a hobby and is an avid believer that you don't need to be a good at your hobbies as long as you enjoy them. That's a lovely sentiment, Steph, and thanks for joining us today. Hey, Rachel, thanks for having me. With that, we're going to jump right in. And first off, I'd like to say that if you're on Twitter, um, which if you're not, you definitely should be, I would highly recommend that. You're probably not surprised that um, Steph Triaxone is our first dosing consult breakpoints episode because its dosing has popped up as a common subject of debate in Twitter threads in the last year or two. Uh, we also featured it this month in our bi-monthly Bench to Bedside with SIPP column on contagionlife.com, which you can check it out there. So we're really out to settle the ceftriaxone debates this month in SIDP. I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with ceftriaxone, um, but Ton, can you start us off today by giving us a brief introduction to its PKPD and mechanism of action? Yeah, sure. I would start off by saying ceftriaxone is a remarkable antibiotic. It's one of my favorite antibiotics. It's one of my favorite antibiotics to discuss with pharmacists in training and, and pharmacy learners, as well as with physicians. It's a beta-lactam, and like all beta-lactams, maximizing its time of MIC is key to optimizing its antibiotic activity, both against gram-negative and gram-positive pathogens. Generally, 50 to 60% of the dosing interval will suffice. What's remarkable about ceftriaxone 
and this is kind of like ertapenem, is it's highly protein bound, meaning much of the drug is not filtered by the kidneys, at least when it's not bound to when it's bound to plasma protein. As such, it's eliminated via other mechanisms. Its lack of renal adjustment confers a tremendous clinical advantage for patients with impaired renal function, notably hospitalized patients with acute kidney injury secondary to infection and volume depletion. It also provides remarkably broad coverage despite decades of clinical use. It's the go-to for community-acquired pneumonia as well as gram-negative coverage for community-acquired UTI and intra-abdominal infections, along with metronidazole, of course, and it's also used for the treatment of sexually transmitted infections. Absolutely, Tom, and I totally agree. I am also a huge fan of ceftriaxone because in the community hospital setting, it is our go-to antibiotic for these common community onset infections. I agree that the non-renal elimination confers a great advantage for patients presenting with renal impairment, but this also provides the logistical benefit of once daily dosing, which is pretty unique and special compared to its beta-lactam peers. Not only is once daily dosing of ceftriaxone attractive for inpatient nursing staff, especially and particularly among the critical access hospitals with limited resources, but also for transitions to the outpatient setting if needed for OPEP. As they love to say at meetings with introductions, thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, before we dive deep into this debate, I want to start with, do we even need to be having it in the first place? Is there anything wrong with using two grams of cetraxone for, for all infection types over one gram? Um, can you start us off with this, Steph? What do you think about it? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rachel. And it is a really good question. And I think that the short answer is probably not. There's probably nothing wrong with standardizing ceftriaxone two grams IV daily for most infections in most adult patient populations. Adverse effects with ceftriaxone are relatively uncommon and the therapeutic index is wide enough to support that approach of ceftriaxone two grams IV daily as a standard regimen in adult populations. And I can appreciate that strategy to save the time and resources it takes to consider the differences of ceftriaxone one gram and two grams uh, daily, especially in regions with high rates of obesity and facilities that take care of critically ill patients. Where I trained in South Carolina, we took that approach. And actually coming out of training a couple of years ago, I was surprised to see any variation in ceftriaxone dosing at all. The risk of underdosing ceftriaxone in that adult patient population and for those critically ill patients far outweighs the benefits of the one gram daily dose. In reality, I think that's the case for a lot of adult populations. There are some older data that show a dose dependent increase in biliary complications, but this was seen in patients receiving greater than 40 milligrams per kilogram per day of ceftriaxone for Lyme disease. And I think we're hard pressed these days to find an adult exceeding that threshold with the two grams uh, daily dose in the US. However, I think the question is still relevant for some settings and some populations with the need to prioritize the diligent use of resources, costs, and not to mention the, the concept of antimicrobial stewardship and our dedication to optimize antimicrobial dosing. Critical access hospitals without ICUs in regions with lower rates of obesity, like a lot of the facilities I serve in my telehealth role in Utah, sufficiently treat infections with ceftriaxone one gram IV daily all the time. In addition, this question does come up um, with the, a global health perspective. So I had 
the privilege to spend some time in Tanzania during my training, and I was surprised to find that medications administered to inpatients there were of the responsibility of the patient's family to afford and procure and, and bring into the ward for the patient to receive for their infection. And no shocker there, the ceftriaxone one gram IV premixes were far less expensive than the two grams and prescribers were often using ceftriaxone one gram IV daily, which was appropriate certainly for many infections in that population. So while standardizing to ceftriaxone two grams IV daily is feasible and appropriate in a lot of cases, I think, there are some situations and settings from critical access hospitals and globally where we need to be familiar with these data and the infections and in populations where ceftriaxone one gram daily is sufficient. Wow, thanks for that really unique perspective. That time in, in Tanzania sounds really interesting and that is really different than the practice that we have here. But I bet you, just like you said, critical access hospitals, there are plenty of places um, and even with our listeners that have to deal with a similar problem, and it might be easier um, either to standardize or to use the lower dose if necessary. You know, it's funny enough, I feel like with ceftriaxin dosing, at least in my own practice, um, not only pharmacists are passionate about this, but even um, some of my physicians have very strong opinions about what ceftriaxone dose to use. And I'm not just talking about my um, ID physicians, like even my hospitalists and generalists are very passionate about um, when to use one gram, when to use two grams. And it's kind of funny to me when I have those conversations with them about recommending one or the other. So can you tell us stuff more about what sites of infection where one gram is enough? Yeah, absolutely. So you will see ceftriaxone one to two grams IV daily listed as a recommendation in guidelines for community acquired pneumonia, uncomplicated cystitis and pyelonephritis, intra-abdominal infections, and disseminated gonococcal infections as well. But again, I would urge taking into consideration the expected PKPD in your patient and in your patient population as well as the severity of infection if you're considering giving ceftriaxone one gram IV daily. Um, I think cystitis is certainly an infection where a lot of the time ceftriaxone one gram IV daily could be sufficient. Community acquired pneumonia is another infection with a, a fair amount of literature comparing one and two grams. In a study using multi-center registry data out of Japan, the cure rate among patients with community acquired pneumonia between the ones, those treated with ceftriaxone one gram versus those treated with ceftriaxone two grams IV daily, they found that the one gram dose was non-inferior in a propensity match study comparing 350 patients in that Japanese registry. It's difficult to make assertions on the severity and the risk among those study participants from the data available uh, but the median age was around 78 years, and most participants were hemodynamically stable on presentation. But it's really important to note here that the mean weight of study participants was 52 kilograms, uh, which unfortunately, I believe, limits generalizability to many populations here in the United States. And so the, the, the short answer to that long answer is there's some infections, um, I would probably opt for considering the ceftriaxone one grams IV daily for patients with uncomplicated community onset infections, where you expect that the PKPD will be favorable. That's great stuff. I think you summarized the issue uh, very, very well. I wanted to just add my two cents uh, for what it's worth, and, and I'll preface this with the notion 
that my take on this is not rooted in any sort of uh, robust interpretation of the literature, but rather just a simple review of competing risks, which is often how I um, think about things in practice. So, and I'm not endorsing this approach to every antibiotic dosing scenario either, but I think in the case of ceftriaxone, at least it makes sense to me. So in short, I don't see much additional harm from using two grams versus one gram, but I see potential benefit, uh, notably increasing the probability of target attainment. Additionally, and you alluded to cost overseas, but uh, in, in my practice, cost is not a major issue when deciding whether to use one gram versus two grams daily. So I gravitate <clears throat> towards two grams daily for all hospitalized adult patients, uh, with the exception of those at the extremes of body weight. Cool, yes. Um, Tom, we love all the sense that we can get here at Breakpoint. So thank you for contributing that. And that is that is like a very uh, rational um, way to think about it. I know here at my hospital, we don't necessarily have um, firm dosing recommendations for one or the other like listed. So people here usually tend to use more um, two grams for everybody. But I guess more for pneumonia and UTI are the major ones where I see people universally using one gram here. And that's also what I tend to recommend. And then for anybody who has bacteremia or is critically ill, I'm usually going to the two gram dose, which speaking of our critically ill population, um, are there any PK and PD changes in that population that we need to consider when we're choosing our cetraxone dose? Well, Rachel, I'm, I'm really glad you asked about this. Um, ceftriaxone is, is a great antibiotic to discuss in the context of critical illness. And that's because of its unique pharmacokinetic properties that differentiate it from many other beta-lactams as I alluded to earlier. But for critically ill patients, I'm specifically referring to its high level of protein binding. Now, why this matters is many critically ill patients have low albumin, meaning there is more unbound or free ceftriaxone available for, for filtration and removal by the kidneys. This coupled with the potential for augmented renal clearance and sepsis and septic shock creates a situation that may lead to ceftriaxone under exposure, particularly on the lower end of the dosing spectrum. Um, I'm deeply indebted to my colleagues at Advocate Aurora Health who collaborated with me on a study that examined this very idea. Using a retrospective observational propensity matched uh, design, we evaluated whether ICU patients receiving ceftriaxone one gram daily were more or less likely to experience treatment failure, which was a composite endpoint of inpatient mortality and or antibiotic escalation due to cl clinical worsening than those who were receiving two grams daily. We also looked at adverse drug events leading to ceftriaxone uh, discontinuation. Outcomes were better in the two gram cohort, and this difference was driven primarily by less antibiotic escalation. So there's a stewardship component here that we tried to highlight in the discussion in that paper. Um, adverse events were extremely rare in both groups. And in the multivariable analysis, we identified three independent predictors of treatment failure. Um, Ceftrax on two gram dosing reduced the likelihood of treatment failure, as did uh, creatinine clearance at 72 hours relative to baseline creatinine clearance. So this was a surrogate for renal and likely organ function recovery. And then the baseline SOFA score was associated with increased risk of treatment failure, which has been shown in multiple studies in terms of um, the severity of illness in the ICU. Um, the nice thing about the renal recovery and the SOFA scores is that they align with the preponderance of data on infections in critically ill patients. So to that, we added the fact that if you got two grams, you were less likely to experience treatment failure and less likely to be escalated to something like piperacillin, tazobactam, miropenem, cefepime, drugs that we do try to conserve from a stewardship standpoint.
I'm really glad that you brought up the critically ill patients specifically with low albumin because ceftriaxone is so protein bound. I've heard a theory from a few people that we should potentially be using one gram Q12 hours instead of two grams Q24 in those patients that have low albumin critically ill or not to counteract possible uh, increased clearance um, of unbound drug. What do you think of that idea? Is that something that we should be considering? I think it's a great question, Rachel. I'm, I'm really glad you asked about it. Um, I think when you think about pharmacokinetic data, for example, with ceftriaxone, it's really important to identify what the outcome of interest is. Are we talking about target attainment? Or are we talking about clinical outcomes? And part of the genesis of the study that we completed that I described earlier was some erdipenem data in burn patients that showing the one gram Q24 hours was inadequate and that a one gram Q12 was necessary for adequate time above MIC. So clearly, Erdipenem is not ceftriaxone, but they are both highly protein-bound antibiotics. And I would also preface this with that burn patients are much different and much more complex than your average ICU patient. But it still begs the question, is one gram Q12 reasonable for ceftriaxone? And many people have asked me about this. Uh, maybe it's because of the erdipenem study. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but we actually put a student on this, and, and she was examining this question using the same data set that we used to publish our, our paper in AAC. Um, and, and thus far, and these are unpublished data, there's no discernible difference between those two uh, different two gram daily exposures in our data set, whether it's two grams once daily or one gram Q12. So I'm comfortable with each dosing strategy, but I tend to recommend two grams once daily because it is only one infusion per day. And then when we were in the midst of various COVID surges, we tried our best as pharmacists to limit the number of times uh, nurses needed to enter the patient rooms to administer medication. So when I saw one gram Q12 in the ICU, for example, I'd often make the recommendation to just do the two grams once daily. But again, it gets at the point of what's your outcome of interest? Is it just target attainment or is it the outcome that matters to the patient managed provider? Um, and that's where I think our, our data take it a step further beyond just um, the, the pharmacokinetic numbers. That really helps answer some of that question for me. And I love when we sprinkle in some philosophy to, into our infectious diseases, <laughs> debates, and decision-making. Uh, it's good to stretch those brain muscles. Um, but Steph, earlier you were talking about the potential weight limitations of that previous study being 52 kilograms. I know I work down here in the Houston area of Texas, and I rarely see an adult patient that is 52 kilograms, uh, let alone 70 kilograms. Right. So yeah. Are there any um, special dose adjustments for ceftriaxone in our obese patients? Yeah. So technically no, but we do know that the risk of clinical failure is higher among obese patients treated with ceftriaxone. Katie Barber and colleagues out of the University of Mississippi shared results of a retrospective cohort study looking at 101 patients treated with ceftriaxone monotherapy for a variety of infections, including urinary tract and respiratory infections. And they found that the clinical failure occurred more often in obese patients when compared to non-obese patients. And it's important to note here that while obese patients were more likely to receive two grams of ceftriaxone daily compared to non-obese patients, the majority of both populations received ceftriaxone one gram daily. And so I think this highlights the importance of not only considering the site of infection, but also the whole, the host, you know, the patient in front of you, as I would generally approach treating patients uh, who are obese with a minimum of ceftriaxone two grams IV daily for really any infection. Yeah, that, that's a, 
a really good point, Steph. And I find antibiotic dosing and obesity to be such a vexing uh, clinical situation. I think everyone listening struggles with this on a daily basis. And in my opinion, you have to use a competing risks framework and you have to do it on a case-by-case basis, evaluating the risk of undertreating your patient and the risk of overexposing your patient. And when you, when you do that, you can create um, broad heuristics for certain antibiotics, which clearly fall on one side of the risk spectrum or another. So for a drug like ceftriaxone with an extremely wide therapeutic index, I think the risk of, quote, overexposure is quite low to negligible with any dose for any adult patient, while the risk of underdosing in obesity, particularly extreme obesity and or those in the ICU is, is very high. That's a very real risk. Uh, Ceftriaxone is highly protein bound with a large volume of distribution. So given the increased body mass that accompanies obesity, I believe it's prudent, uh, as Steph alluded to, to use at least two grams daily and potentially even two grams Q12 for patients who are morbidly obese, particularly if they're in the ICU uh, with organ dysfunction and or um, low albumin. Um, I think this is very different from some of the other medications that are antibiotics that we use that have a, a very high risk of toxicity like aminoglycosides, vancomycin, polymyxin B. So it's kind of the other side of that spectrum. Yeah, and as you guys alluded to earlier, um, ceftriaxone and beta-lactams in general are generally wide therapeutic index medications. So I know as I've progressed along in my career, I kind of have gravitated more towards very aggressive do- dosing of beta-lactams because can't really cause harm to somebody who is dead from a very severe infection. So it might be better to be aggressive up front um, and then step down if necessary. So thanks for those uh, perspectives on critically ill patients. Next, I'm going to switch it up. We're going to change to a sub-debate within our ceftriaxone dosing debate. So debate inception here. And I want to know if you guys use ceftriaxone for invasive MSSA infections. Yes, I just went there. So everybody get ready. If you guys do, what dose do you use? Tom, you can kick us off. Sure. I will all admit right off the bat, I'm not a believer in ceftriaxone for invasive MSSA, not as empiric therapy, not as step-down therapy. Uh, reason being, I don't think the current breakpoints lack the ability to inform uh, ceftriaxone prescribing for these infections. Uh, if you look back to 2013, CLSI eliminated all beta-lactam breakpoints for MSSA, savoxacillin, cefoxitin, penicillin, and septeroline. So CLSI deems all oxacillin-susceptible staph aureus isolates as MSSA, following confirmation by a cefoxitin disc diffusion test. In my mind, this is quite a leap without clinical outcomes data to back it up. And at least among those in my orbit, it's not something we hang our hats on clinically. If you look back historically, the septriaxone susceptibility breakpoint for staph aureus was less than or equal to eight. That's incredible, given that in 2013, CLSI also lowered their their breakpoint for septriaxone for gram negatives to less than or equal to one. And this was to alleviate the convoluted ESBL confirmatory testing that was going on at the time. It didn't have anything to do with staph aureus. Um, But that's quite a difference, one versus eight. And while susceptibility with surrogate agents is, is not uncommon in ID and in the clinical microbiology lab, I'd ask the questions that, is this appropriate? And is this appropriate for invasive staph aureus, a disease with a high rate of mortality? And what are the clinical implications of these assumptions? And do we even have data, robust data to answer that question? I would argue that we don't. Uh, I'm gonna review, I get asked this question a lot. I'm gonna review some of the data that I think are pertinent, but there was a 2017 study out of Ohio State where the authors looked at 96 random MSSA bloodstream isolates and the ceftriaxone on MIC 50 was greater than or equal to four. Over 10% were non-susceptible to ceftriaxone by e-test. 
And a septriaxon and oxacillin MIC is correlated very poorly with an R squared of 0 0.16. Um, septriaxone was also only bactericidal in vitro against uh, less than half of the isolates. We have to remember that ceftriaxone has a narrow penicillin binding protein affinity and its bactericidal effect versus Staph aureus can take five to 15 hours. And that can increase up to 35 hours in the presence of albumin. So again, not, not looking so great for ceftriaxone. Once daily ceftriaxone is convenient, sure, but we have to remember that cephalosporins are cytal against MSSA when they achieve 40 to 50% time above MIC. A number of studies have looked at this. There was a Poster at ICAC in 2009 that found the probability of 25% time above MIC with two grams once daily in non-critically ill patients was 93% for an MIC of four and 1.6% for an MIC of eight. Additionally, septriaxone uh, two grams once daily in critically ill patients achieved a median free septriaxone concentration greater than eight for only about four hours. So that is not enough. That's not 50% of the dosing involved. Uh, Monte Carlo simulations by Hausman and colleagues examined the cumulative fraction response for various antibiotic dosing schemes against MSSA. What was notable about their results, uh, besides on 2 grams to Q12 being the best ceftriaxone dosing scheme, was that on 2 grams daily had a CFR of 55%, which was almost the same as vancomycin 1 gram Q12. So I'm extrapolating a bit here. But you could make a somewhat decent argument that on two grams once daily for MSSA is kind of like giving your patients vancomycin for MSSA, something surely no one listening to this podcast is going to endorse. I'll also say um, that Cheryl uh, Zelenitsky's group in Canada has also published PKPD modeling data that suggests on two grams tw uh, twice daily offers you the best chance of PKPD success for MSSA. The largest study of which I'm aware examining alternative beta-lactams for MSSA was a retrospective observational study um, out of Israel. And in that study, limitations of their study design aside, um, I think it's the best type of data we'll get on this, um, these types of comparisons. 30-day mortality was higher with ceftriaxone than with oxacillin or cefazolin. I'd also say there are some smaller retrospective studies looking at ceftriaxone, some for osteoarticular infections, for example. I wanted to highlight one of those, which was a 2018 study out of uh, the Cleveland, Ohio VA, patients with MSSA bacteremia. This was published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases. Patients received greater than 14 days of cefazolin or ceftriaxone, and the primary outcome was a composite endpoint of treatment failure, meaning therapy extension, incomplete therapy, un unplanned oral suppressive therapy, infection relapse, or hospital admission or surgery within 90 days. They included 71 patients, and the overall treatment failure rate was very high, which we'd expect, 40.8%. And it was 54.5% with ceftriaxone compared to 28.9% with cefazolin. Uh, of the ceftriaxone patients, four received one gram Q24, 27 received two grams uh, daily, and only two received two grams Q12, probably owing to the convenience of once daily dosing. Um, so all told, I would say oxacillin um, and cefoxetin susceptibility are probably not a good predictor of ceftriaxone susceptibility among MSSA. And if you're trying to use ceftriaxone for convenience, for example, a two gram once daily dosing strategy, it's not gonna be enough based on the available PKPD data against MSSA. So at that point, you're stuck with two grams twice daily, which affords your patients really no convenience. And I'd say at that point, you may as well just prescribe daptomycin um, or look into some of the oral therapy options that are um, you know, continue, we're getting, continuing to get data on that. Although I would fully acknowledge that the data for oral step-down antibiotic therapy for invasive MSSA, while promising, are, are pretty limited in scope and their general, generalizability at this point. Wow, you're really, 
throwing it back there. I feel like I touched on a nerve here with the, with this debate, but I think it is a really relevant one and things that are talked about a lot. And I love the throwback to ICAC. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, what, do you have anything to add? Truthfully, no, that was such an excellent and comprehensive review, Tom. Um, and I really couldn't have said it better myself. I will comment that if you're going to go with ceftriaxone and two grams IVQ12 for MSSA, which I would also argue is, is, is probably needed, you might as well, in my opinion, choose cefazolin, two grams IVQ12, which had even higher success in the PKPD modeling uh, in that study by Zelenitsky's group. Um, and I have similar experience in practice that the need for a convenient daily antibiotic does come up quite often. And in these scenarios, we avoid daily cetraxone for all of those reasons uh, Tom mentioned. Um, and we do usually opt for daptomycin these days in patients with an MSSA infection for whom more frequent dosing is just uh, not an option. Well, that was a beautiful rehashing of that discussion and the evidence behind it from the both of you. So thank you so much for that. I'm so glad we have it on audio recording. But I also just want to throw in a plug to our SIDP members. Um, Kira Bolak and Jamie Wagner at the SIDP business meeting last year did a whole hour discussion on this debate um, about whether or not you can use cefraxone for MSSA bacteremia. So if you want to learn even more about it, um, you can go to the SIDP website into their education center and actually check out that debate there. So um, you get best of both worlds. You get a shorter version. And then if you want more, you can get a longer version. But sticking with the gram positives here, um, I'm going to pivot to enterococcal endocarditis. And in that, several years ago, the study came out suggesting that you can use ceftriaxone with ampicillin as an alternative to an amp and gent combination um, to have less toxicity and similar efficacy. Can you explain why we can use that combination and then what dose of ceftriaxone is recommended for that? Yeah, I'll take, I'll start. Um, well, cephalosporins lack a Activity against enterococcal species. But in combination with the semi-synthetic penicillins, amoxicillin, and ampicillin, um, they exhibit tremendous synergy against E. faecalis. Um, stress the faecalis here. Enterococcus expresses five penicillin binding proteins, so PBPs one through five. At high doses, amox and amp will bind penicillin binding proteins one, four, and five, and ceftriaxone, as well as cefotaxime, bind the non-essential penicillin binding proteins two and three. So binding up all five PBPs creates remarkable synergy, and clinically, ampicillin with ceftriaxone for efecalis endocarditis results in similar treatment outcomes uh, compared to the historical standard of ampicillin and gentamicin, but markedly less toxicity, as we would expect, because you're not using an aminoglycoside. The only downside of this combination is the ceftriaxone needs to be dosed twice daily, two grams every 12 hours. Uh, this dosing is based upon the studies demonstrating the efficacy and safety of this combination, ceftriaxone and ampicillin, and is endorsed uh, by the most recent version of the AHA endocarditis treatment guidelines. Still, that inconvenience aside, I still believe that it's better than dosing gent up to three times daily, checking levels and, and, and all that that goes along with gentamicin. I agree. Even with twice daily, the peace of mind of not worrying as much about um, giving my patient significant nephrotoxicity or ototoxicity is um, comforting. But in the gram-positive realm, you know, with MSSA, although we are not endorsing it here using ceftriaxone, we did say if you're going to use it, you need to use two grams Q12. For enterococcal enterocarditis, you need to use two grams Q12. No matter what you're using it for, Q12 
ceftriaxone is really difficult to do in the outpatient setting. Um, I know our COPAT and OPAT friends really struggle with this. So potentially controversial question, could you give it as a one-time dose of four grams instead? That is, that is really the big question, right? And I'm going to take a step back from tolerability because I think that's the first thing on everybody's mind with that question. And I'm going to dive into with intercoccal endocarditis, why we might not have a lot of confidence in that. And there's recent studies that really haven't given much reason to support the consolidation of ceftriaxone dosing into a four gram daily dose uh, for intercoccal endocarditis from an efficacy standpoint, unfortunately. Herrera, Hidalgo, and colleagues out of Spain published a crossover PK study among 12 healthy patients, which showed that the four-gram IV daily dose failed to maintain ceftriaxone concentrations above the five micrograms per ml, um, which is thought to be the minimum needed for Synergy. The authors took it a step further then to investigate clinical outcomes in a retrospective study among 59 patients with enterococcal endocarditis between 2005 and 2009. Patients received one of three ceftriaxone administration schemes, the first being the traditional twice daily dosing with ceftriaxone two grams IV every 12 hours. Uh, the consolidated version, so ceftriaxone four grams IV every 24 hours. And they also had a third arm. It's not one I had really seen much of before, but they had a third arm that included patients who were treated with a co-formulated solution via an infusion pump which was designed to provide two grams of IV ampicillin and 666 milligrams of IV ceftriaxone every four hours. They found an overall rate of relapsed infection in seven of 59 patients. And of those seven who experienced a relapse infection, six uh, were in the consolidated ceftriaxone four grams IVQ 24 hour group. And interestingly, among the 17 patients in that consolidated dosing group, there were no adverse drug events reported, which I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily consistent with clinical experience, at least in my circle. But taking note that this study was small and retrospective, but it was some of the best data I could find on consolidating the dose to four grams daily. I just don't think these data make me very hopeful for the reliability of that option. And, and that's on efficacy. And I think tolerability is a whole nother avenue where we just, we don't have a lot of data, but in clinical experience, I don't think we find that patients are always tolerating it. Great, great point, Steph. I love how you 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 synthesize the the PKPD data along with the clinical experience and the actual patient oriented outcomes because that's really really what matters. I think this is a natural extension of the ceftriaxone convenience argument, asking whether or not you can prescribe ceftriaxone four grams once daily. It clearly affords the patient. Uh, for some convenience. I'm not aware of any U.S. guidelines endorsing this, but the European guidelines for the treatment of CNS infections do list in one table, very small print, ceftriaxone four gram once daily as an option. Um, in my career, I've actually been consulted on two cases where an ID physician wanted to use ceftriaxone four grams once daily. Neither was for MSSA bacteremia, by the way. Um, and I would say logistically, it's not hard to make a four gram bag of ceftriaxone and infuse it. We can do that. Uh, my biggest concern in both cases was patient tolerability. Um, and in fact, neither patient tolerated uh, four grams once daily for very long. Unfortunately, this was a number of years ago and the reasons for that escaped me. I do just recall re discussing alternative antibiotic therapy once the four gram once daily regimen was not tolerated by the patient. So I'd say based on this robust sample of two patients that uh, four <laughs> gram 
once daily may not be a viable option for all patients, um, but I'm certainly um, open to reviewing, reviewing the literature and hearing from other pharmacists and physicians if this is an option. Yeah, I've never used four gram once daily here, but I definitely will be trying it based on um, y'all's responses <laughs> here. So sorry, OPAT and COPAT um, pharmacy colleagues, but I have full faith that you guys are able to fully figure this out. Some of the strongest <laughs> pharmacists I know work in OPAT and COPAT. The last sub debate in our ceftriaxone dosing debate today, I'm going to kick it over to Steph to talk about ceftriaxone dosing in um, gonococcal infection. Maybe not something that a lot of people think is controversial, but I think it's something that we should highlight nonetheless. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm glad we have time to, to get to this today. Um, and we have a chance now to bring up the, the updated uh, 2021 CDC guidance for gonococcal infection, which notably increased the recommended dose for adults less than 150 kilograms with uncomplicated infection of the cervix, urethra, and rectum to ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM times one dose. And then for patients who are greater than or equal to 150 kilograms, um, they are recommended to receive ceftriaxone uh, 1,000 milligrams IM times one dose for the treatment of those uncomplicated gonococcal infection. Uh, the azithromycin combination has been abandoned altogether. Both the recommendation for a higher dose of the IM ceftriaxone and the abandonment of the dual therapy with the azithromycin come in the face of increasing resistance among Neisseria gonorrhea isolates. The robust surveillance done by the gonococcal isolate surveillance project has informed resistant patterns amongst Neisseria gonorrhea since 1986, and hence the evolution of treatment recommendations for gonococcal infection. Compared to other treatments such as fluoroquinolones and macrolides, Neisseria gonorrhea has maintained remarkable susceptibility to ceftriaxone, despite this being our only first-line option for treatment of gonococcal infections in the last decade. Since 2010, azithromycin-resistant isolates have increased almost tenfold, so that's another reason it was uh, abandoned in the 2021 update. Uh, despite relatively slow development of resistance, MICs for ceftriaxone among Neisseria gonorrhea isolates are, they are on the rise. Um, and so while it's maintained susceptibility, there is the surveillance is revealing that MICs are on the rise. Um, and so this was a major driver for the higher intramuscular doses for uncomplicated gonococcal infections. Thanks for that quick review, Steph. Um, and if you're interested in SDI treatment in general, y'all stay tuned because later in the year, uh, we'll have an episode talking about that. So um, tune in then. And we've covered a lot today, but we're still not done. And for our last debate of the day, we're going to pivot to our I Feel Nerdy segment. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists and hosts to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. And this is a very nerdy debate, but very hotly contested. I think I actually saw it on Twitter just this week. So it is, it's very active and ongoing. What is your preferred abbreviation for cefraxone? CTX all the way. Uh, I don't care for the CRO, uh, regardless of the micro community, ASM, AAC's preference for CRO. I never use CRO. Uh, I always abbreviate it uh, CTX. And I, I would be team CRO. So this is actually uh, maybe a good debate we will have. And I will vote CRO every time and every Twitter poll 
until AAC changes their mind. I've seen and appreciated all of the arguments, um, mostly on Twitter, for CTX. So I definitely see where you're coming from, Tom. Um, but we know CTX, according to AAC, is reserved for cefotaxime presently. Um, and one of the arguments that I've seen that I think holds a lot of weight is that cefotaxime use pales in comparison to ceftriaxone use. Therefore, we should be using the abbreviation that makes the most sense for our uh, trusted ceftriaxone. Um, but until I can pull up the webpage for AAC abbreviations and see CTX assigned to ceftriaxone in beautiful shining lights, I am a rule follower, I guess. So I will be using uh, CRO. That being said, I do have a little uh, anecdote, uh, cautionary tale to share. Um, I, I don't use antibiotic abbreviations really for any type of communication with, with other clinicians. And that does include social media if I, if I have the characters to spare, uh, but especially in patient care. So I ran into a, a situation once uh, when I was a resident where I used the CRO abbreviation for, for ceftriaxone in a note that I left for another pharmacist. It was, it was probably a quick note I was trying to leave as I was maybe walking out the door, um, something along the lines of, hey, can we stop ceftriaxone, or, which I abbreviated CRO. Um, it's day five for community-acquired pneumonia, something like that. And that pharmacist came to me the next day she asked what my note meant, and she told me she thought uh, my note was referring to CROFAB. And since I do not fashion myself an expert on anything to do with antivenomous agents, really, I, I definitely learned my lesson that day. Um, and I would consider this everybody's cautionary tale for using abbreviations that are not widely agreed upon or understood. That is such an interesting story. I have not, uh, I trained in New Mexico and we used to deal with CROFAB all the time, but I admittedly have not thought about CROFAB in a long time. Right. You all catch me trying to make um, recommendations for starting, stopping, or dosing CROFAB. So, <laughs> um, but on this podcast, Tom, I'm sorry you lose because I am also a CRO abbreviation fan. Um, also probably goes back to my rule following nature, uh, but I mean, there's a definition there. I'm, I want to use the definition, although I'm not going to hate on you if you're a CTX, um, fan and CTX, you know, it has this confusing, uh, in, in regards to Seth's anecdote, like CTX has its own issues as well. My ID fellow always says he thinks of CTX as chemotherapy. So, mm. which is not what I see when I look at it, but also I would argue that just because here we don't have cefotaxime anymore, which is sad on its own. Other countries still do. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that they have it in Europe and Canada. Um, and so for them, this is very, they're very different things and very relevant, but, um, uh, I agree with you, Steph. I don't, I don't put abbreviations in notes usually. Um, but when I am talking and I say ceftriaxone, I will say CRO, it just rolls off the tongue. It rolls mm -hmm. off the tongue better than CTX. And I, I'm, I will die on that hill. But CTX, it sounds so much more aggressive. Like the X at the end, it's just, it's, it's, Killing those bacteria. I don't know. I don't know, but I think of ceftriaxone as like a friendly antibiotic. It's not aggressive. Yes. Like, yeah, it's powerful and it's fierce, but it's not, it's not the one that's going to slap you in the face and you need to like stay away from it. It's approachable. It's a very, I was going to say approachable. Yes. Very well tolerated, very approachable. All right. I see where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know, it's not like an aminoglycoside where a lot of physicians are afraid of it. Like everyone feels very comfortable with ceftriaxone. Sometimes that's not the best thing, but still, so 
here at the, on this very specific breakpoints episode, it's CRO for ceftriaxone all the way. Um, but keep an eye out for Twitter because I'm sure that poll is going to keep popping up um, again and again and again. Thank you both for being here today. I think this was a really important and helpful episode. Um, it's nice to help settle some of these questions, although I don't, I'm not sure that we gave anybody super decisive answers, but I definitely think you both provided a great summary of the evidence to help people make more well-informed decisions in the care of their patients. So I thank you both for that. And I had a lot of fun. So I hope our listeners also had a lot of fun. And before we go, um, I want to highlight ID Pharmacist Day. It passed. It was on May 22nd. But thank you to everyone who helped us celebrate that. Um, and with ICIDP, who celebrated that with us. Um, we did a Twitter storm. We had an advocacy toolkit. We had a share your story contest on our social media pages. So thanks for all who participated in that. Um, if you weren't able to, you still can catch up on all the action by going to sidp.com slash day and checking out our social media pages. But in the end, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Tom Dilworth and Stephanie Sheely May. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Julianne Hayes. It was edited by Sasha Premraj, Lena Meng, and Christian Gill. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zavante. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary, and our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.